Good morning, all. Years ago, when I was a, a young atheist, which is the worst kind, I was, a, I was actually a mother's milk atheist. So I, was, um, I didn't know much about atheism other than the fact that I was really glad to be one, and I was really eager to share with everybody that I had graduated to this sort of intellectual uh, peak, which allowed me then to uh, look down on pretty much everybody else in the world. And we were, we were brought into a program at the Rouse Company, which uh, was coordinated by a group that borrowed very heavily on something called Earhart Seminar Training, to um, increase the profitability of the Rouse Company. Uh, there was a, a, an executive vice president who was in charge of this, who organized the whole thing, and the rest of the company started referring to us all as Moonies, which gave you an idea, I guess, of their attitude towards where we were going with this whole program. And in this program, in the class that I was in, we had a, a young lady who was a Christian. And she, um, on the first day, after about half an hour or so, would speak up and say, I don't like the way this thing is going. Uh, I'm hearing all kinds of stuff that I just simply think is wrong. It doesn't accord with the Bible. As a Christian, I don't believe I can submit to the teaching, and I don't think I can put it into practice. And if my future with the Rouse Company depends upon my coming through this program, I may as well confess that it's time for me to start sending out resumes. And the um, executive vice president who was in charge of this, the head Mooney, um, who I actually really liked, but his response to this was, well, I'm a spiritual person. And at the time, I thought that was exactly the right thing to say, uh, that it would shut down this conversation, hopefully, because one of the things also about this young lady who was a Christian was I'm the one who actually got her the job there, and I thought that everybody would have start looking at me and saying, well, thank you very much for bringing this uh, loon into our presence who is just going to gum up the works with all the things that we're trying to do. Um, but the idea of being a spiritual person stuck with me because I've heard about this uh, a lot. I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, describe themselves as a spiritual person, which is another way of saying that I do not follow Jesus Christ. Uh, I've never heard a person uh, limit themselves who is a Christian. I've never heard them limit themselves to just saying that I'm spiritual. And the fact of the matter is, when you think about uh, describing yourself as spiritual, it's actually sort of meaningless because it's basically the same thing as describing yourself as organic. Um, we are a blend. We're created in the image of God. We are a blend of spirit and flesh. And that's, all, and that's what we are, basically. And so to describe yourself as um, spiritual with this pride uh, that my uh, friend R. Harwood Bevel was talking about, uh, in the end, I thought, this is actually meaning this. This is boasting about literally just who you are automatically. There is nobody in the world who is not spiritual. And so calling yourself spiritual as a badge of honor just simply didn't get you anywhere. Um, as a spiritual person, I glommed onto that as an atheist because I thought, well, I am spiritual, which to me was the same thing as saying thoughtful. And so um, I just felt like that was uh, the kind of thing that would make me a better person by being thoughtful and kind and, you know, the various other thing that all these Christians claim to do but actually don't. Atheists love to say that Christians don't live up to their own teaching. They love to say that. Um, our relationship with God, and we talk a lot about relationships, our relationship with God is covenantal. The uh, subject of the scripture lesson today in Genesis 15 is about a covenant, about something that is ordained and given to us by God to accept and to then enter into a relationship with him, which is more than just feeling good, more than just the kind of um, things that relationships normally provide for us. There is an element of, a very strong element, of responsibility and obligation 
in, in all of this. And if you do not have uh, that in your relationship with, with uh, the Lord, the fact of the matter is that your relationship with him essentially is a dead end and it's going nowhere. Certainly not going where you think it's going to be going. And the, um, uh, the comparison I have with this of, of a, of a uh, relationship with God with no promise, with no covenant, with no consequences, and with no penalties is like buying a house and getting a mortgage and you agree that you're going to make these mortgage payments for 30 years, and then the house belongs to you, and the next month comes, and you don't feel like sending in your check, and so you don't. I didn't feel like it. Uh, I don't like these rules. I don't, uh, I don't care to be bound by all the things. I just simply don't like sending them in, so I'm not going to. And what the bank would then say is, all right, try your best next month. And once you get away with not sending in your check, what's going to happen next month? You're not going to send in a check then either. And the consequence is, if that is the way the covenant is enforced, then after 30 years, you don't have to send in a single payment, and the house belongs to you anyhow. And that is the way that a lot of folks today, out in the wide, wide world, that is essentially what they're saying about their walk with Christ. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to join a church. I don't have to be a part of anything. I don't have to do all of this stuff the Bible says. I can interpret God my own personal way. It doesn't make any difference. And in however many years, I'm going to end up in heaven with the same reward that everybody else gets. In the covenant, uh, in the Old Testament as it presented and also as it continues into the New Testament, uh, there are indeed penalties. Uh, we don't like penalties. And when we're trying to talk people to people who we want them to give their lives to Christ, Christ we don't usually bring up penalties very often. Uh, it's not a good sales tool. And so we, we soft-pedal that, and we don't talk about the things we have to give up. We just talk about all the joy that's coming our way as we submit to the Lord of the universe. And then we understand that mother's milk Christians will come in feeling this way, and that in time they're going to learn, and they're going to grow, and they're going to become what uh, Paul said, the uh, one who would be uh, ready for solid food. Um, the covenant being what it is, um, it also means that uh, it's possible to reject it. And then, therefore, you would be on the outside. And if you're on the outside, you are going to be treated differently than if you're on the inside. We don't always like the fact that the Lord treats people differently. We like the idea that God is a God of all, that he loves everybody just the same, which is true. But it does matter whether we have repented. It does matter whether we're in the covenant or not. If we did not, if it did not matter, if everybody was treated exactly the same, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. We wouldn't have needed him in the flesh, let alone nailing him to the cross. What would that have accomplished if everything, if nobody was going to be treated, if everybody was going to be treated the same and it didn't make any difference what we did? There was something obviously very definitely what was needed in that. Um, God cannot overlook, excuse, or shrug off sin. Um, that would be unjust. And in the covenant that he's given to us, the contract that he's given to us, that he's offered to us, that we enter into, it would be unfair. Genesis 15 starts off this way. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram had not been renamed Abraham yet, but it's the same guy. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. Now, um, 
Abram, of course, was expecting children, and the promise had been made, and he was really looking forward to all of this, and it still hadn't happened. And what Jesus was, ba- uh, Jesus, what Abraham was basically saying was, God, what gives? And then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. A son coming for your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness typically is um, something that deals with what our behavior is. The kind of things we say, the way that we act. In this case, belief alone was credited by God to Abram as righteousness, because let's face it, uh, first of all, of course, God knew who he was choosing. But the second thing is that these were a couple of promises that you would think would be extremely hard to believe, even coming from God. Uh, Abram was an old man. Sarah was an old woman. That The idea of them having a child was, uh, was, was pretty outrageous. The idea of them having offspring as great as the, as the uh, stars in the heaven was also very hard to believe. But Abram did something that is obviously the smartest thing to do when you're dealing with God. Whatever he says, you believe it, no matter whether it makes any sense to you at the moment or not. Wherever he asks you to go, whatever he asks you to believe, whatever he asks you to say, if it comes from God, it is right, and we take it to heart and make it our own. God also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it. Abram was asking for a sign. Um, I was raised to think that asking for a sign would make God mad, that you were asking for proof of his existence, that you wanted him to, to show you that he wanted you to do things. I can remember lots of times when I first read the scripture about, um, uh, who was it, um, Gideon? Was it Gideon who put the fleece on the ground and then said if it's, if it's wet in the morning and everything else is dry and then the next day says, well... We're going to go the other way. If it's dry in the morning and everything else is wet, then I will have a sign. Then I will listen, and uh, then I'll know that I'm dealing actually with God and that you really, um, I'm hearing you rightly. In this case, um, what we're dealing with here is, is a, a man who's not really asking for a sign of God's existence. He's not asking for proof of God's uh, uh, reality. He's talking to God at the moment and still asking for a sign. What could he possibly mean? What he's basically saying then is he wants to make sure that when it comes he doesn't miss it that he doesn't misinterpret it. Tell me what it is. Give me the sign. Give me the sign that you're with me. It will help me then to proceed in my walk with you. This brings us to a right, which is very confusing to us. Um, When I was in college, and I was a Jesus freak, this is before I I, uh, threw my faith away, um, I didn't really follow Jesus at the time. In order to be a Jesus freak at the time, you had to have long hair and a T-shirt with a cross on it. And so I, so I, had, I had those, and um, so I, you know, I passed. I was able to pass. I, I, knew, I knew that I believed in God. I didn't, I didn't follow him. I didn't want to do anything that he said. I certainly wasn't following him when, when I was um, in uh, my friend's dorm room uh, with a bong. Um, uh, those were the days. Um, that's, that's when I thought I was getting enlightenment. Oh, oh man, now I see it. Now I understand. No, you, you eventually come down and find out that everything that you were believing at the time was gone. 
But as a Jesus freak, um, one of the things that I was, uh, was listening to, there was a group that put out albums in those days. There was a group called Firesign Theater. Does anybody remember them? Remember Firesign Theater? Um, Firesign Theater was, um, was terribly, terribly hip. And then when they would make fun of Christians, when they would make fun of the church, when they would make fun of the Bible... Uh, it really tested me because everybody loved these guys. They sounded so right. They sounded so cool. They sounded so hip. They sounded like the kind of people that a guy like me would want to be like. I didn't want to be like my pastor. I wanted to be like these guys. I wanted to be like George Carlin. I wanted to be like Mick Jagger. I wanted to be like Jim Morrison. These were all my heroes at the time. That's who I wanted to be like, and, or Steve McQueen. And so I wanted to follow uh, these folks and be like them. And when they would make fun of Scripture, they would make fun of passages like this rite that was coming up. They would find something obscure and hard to understand from a culture that we don't know, and they would just simply make fun of it because it simply doesn't apply to who we are now. Uh, they would fill their comedy with lots of expressions. Like they, they filled it with a lot of yay verilies. They would say yay verily all over and over again, and we would all, we would all sort of laugh at that. And, and George Carlin and all, they had, a, they had a field day, Monty Python, they had a field day making fun of the church and making fun of Christians. Um, and it was hard for me to, uh, to resist but when we, and to, to turn my back on it because it, um, it was presented in a way that like everybody else on campus seemed to get it but me. And um, being sort of the follower that I, that I was, it, uh, I, it, it began to really chip away at my faith. But we can understand this. This, this can be understood. The, the uh, right that I'm about to, to read about here it can be understood. It is not so alien that is completely separated from our ability to tap into it and understand what it is that uh, they're trying to tell us about it. So here it is. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now notice he did this with, uh, Abram did this without getting any further instructions. God said, bring them to me. Abram cut them in half and arranged them into two rows. And then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, know for certain, this is part of the um, sign and the promise, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that serves as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. This rite, which Abram obviously knew because only just knowing that he was asking for the, the raw materials, he knew exactly what had to be done with them. This rite that doesn't make any sense to us was something that was normally presented by a lord or somebody else who was in charge, and you would line these up, and the, the person who was then subservient would walk through them. And as you would walk through them, the, the, the idea was, may I end up, like these animals, cut into pieces if I am not loyal, if I am not faithful, if I do not hold my promise. And by that, the lord who established this knows I'm dealing with somebody who is going to be faithful to me. I can trust this person from now on. Um, listen what happens here, though. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is God. We've seen God represented as fire before. We saw the burning bush. We've seen the pillar of fire. He's a fire here as well. 
Um, this passed between the pieces. God passed between the pieces. Not the subservient slave, but the Lord, the Lord who established this. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. God, on his own initiative, made himself basically liable to Abram. He basically told a man, may I end up like these animals if I do not do what I'm saying I'm going to do to you right now. Abram didn't have to do anything. Abram didn't have to, he didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to respond. He didn't have to walk through the pieces otherwise. God put himself on the line and said, may my life be forfeit. May the life of God be forfeit if I do not keep my promise to you. Imagine. Um... God making himself vulnerable to us. And, you know, if, 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 lest it be thought that this is some uh, completely mysterious and it can't be, it, maybe we're being misunderstanding. In Jeremiah 28, it's described again. This was something that was widely done in that part of the world. And God, by doing this, uh, uh, was basically acknowledging the fact that this was something that Abram would understand. He knew exactly what was happening, except for the shock of seeing God be the one who would subject himself to a man and say, may my life be forfeit. May I become like these animals if I don't do to you what I say I'm going to do. Um, the covenant then was, was formalized and instituted, and it would never change. Uh, we read about it over and over again in the New Testament. How many times in the New Testament do we hear about, um, from Paul especially, God then took upon himself both ends of the covenant, the blessing and the curse. The penalties that I was describing that uh, we talk about in the the, uh, Old Testament in particular, these are talked about as curses. God took these upon himself. God took curses upon himself. Imagine. Are we taught this in Sunday school? I don't think so. Probably for good reason. Um, Trying to tell a child or, or, or to be raised this, this is kind of something you grow into. This is solid meat Christianity. This is faith that's terribly, terribly uh, dependent upon knowing who it is you're serving and what you're getting into, it's life-changing and it's life-emptying and then life-filling. Um, nothing stays the same when you give yourself to the Lord. Um, Abraham doesn't have to promise anything. He doesn't say a word. He just knows that his Lord has put himself on the line for him uh, to keep his promise. And, of course, what we know is that eventually... God did die, right, on the cross. When God gave himself to us and and gave himself to Abraham and to his seed, right, he gave himself for us. I will bless you no matter what, even if I must be torn to pieces, which he was in Christ. And so the covenant is based upon establishing relationship. Now, what comes out of this um, right, the idea of the cursing and so on, Let's turn to Galatians 3, starting with verse 6. Consider Abraham. There we go. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. 
all nations will be blessed through you so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now, you know what this sounds like to a Jew, right? The Jew has spent his entire life keeping the law and now finding out that he's under a curse. Very jarring news. And one of the things that obviously meant that when a lot of people were listening to Jesus either speaking or being spoken about, they didn't know what to make of it. It was too much for them to give up something they believed all their lives. And some of them just could not. Others, of course, were able to recognize who, who Jesus was. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not based on faith, and on the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus became the curse for us, the penalty for sin. He became that. Didn't just endure it, didn't just absorb it. He became that. He became the curse and fulfilled the law. One of the hardest things sometimes to understand is why that had to be done. There are a lot of Christians now who believe that the, um, the, the whole idea of the, um, uh, the crucifixion was, was a, a horrible miscarriage of justice. There is, I, I'm fond of saying this, actually he's retired now, so I can't say it like I used to, but the bishop of the Episcopalian Church in northern New Jersey, who is retired, didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, a bishop just didn't see the sense in it and uh, didn't, see the, didn't, didn't see what it achieved, didn't understand what it did. A, all, a lifetime of studying what Scripture says, of, of presumably of praying and listening to the Lord, didn't get it. Um, apparently it's not, it's not given to everybody. He became a curse absorbed for us so that we would have the blessing. That's love. That is the ultimate blend of love and law. The love which we all know and the law that we all have to abide by, the law that sometimes we chafe underneath of, the law that sometimes stymies our plans or interrupts our, our uh, joy or, or, or threatens to put us in a position where we have a lot more work to do than we want to do, where we would just like to enjoy the blessing because God loves me and I can just stand here and enjoy all of this. We have, this has all been paid for at a price. You have been bought for a price, a very dear price. The ultimate blend of love and law showing that the blessings of God are both conditional and unconditional. For a long time, I thought it had to be one or the other. And any time that I was looking at love that was, condi- that was conditional, uh, there could be no... Um, I had to reject the unconditional part, and vice versa. There is... Um, uh, the, the way that human beings do is when you read... When you get a group of people together and you read something like this, you'll find that people fall out all along the spectrum about which, which part of these do I like best that I will then hold on to and make my own. And so at the one end, which in theology is the liberal end of the theology, you have the idea of law being um, anathema. The idea, actually, of anything supernatural is uh, frowned upon. And so the idea is, it's like the, um, the mortgage example I was talking about, hang in there, we're all going to end up in heaven. That's called universalism, and there are a lot of people who feel that way. I've, as one of the things I'm fond of saying is people really do believe in their heart of hearts, if you were to go to hell, the only person you would see there was Hitler. 
Everybody else gets away somehow or other. Everybody else is able to be justified or is able to be loved or to be forgiven, except for a couple of extreme examples. We're all going there, the conservative end of it, not the orthodox end of it. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably, and they shouldn't be. Orthodox is more what comes from Scripture. The the conservative that I'm talking about is the idea that um, um, there's a lot of judgmentalism at that end of the spectrum. You are going to hell. You're not behaving right. You're not doing right. The idea of forgiveness and grace comes very hard with some people. They love the idea that somebody's going to get punished, that somebody's going to get their just rewards. They can hardly wait. In fact, they wouldn't mind being there to see it. I can think of some people that I would love to see the look on their face when they realize that God is real, and they realize that God objects to some of these things. Uh, can Can I just see it? Can I watch? I want to see the look on their face when they realize that, uh, you've been there all along and that you meant this stuff. Um, in between, of course, where the scripture uh, lies is the truth. Remember, on the cross, Jesus absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that we would no longer be under it. We would no longer be uh, beholden to it. Uh, the way uh, Paul talks about the law is that the law actually is a stumbling block to us, and that if we hold too firmly to it and, and miss the point that it's been fulfilled in Christ when he died and paid the ultimate penalty for us, and he took care of uh, and taking the curse for us, well, we begin to think we have to do this ourselves. It's our job to do something that Jesus has already done for us, and of course that's obviously wrong. He fulfilled the curse, and we get the blessing. We receive unconditionally... I'm sorry, it's snowing. So, somebody, somebody, somebody closed the blinds, so I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just like a little, I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, we all get out early. <laughs> all right, okay. Focus, Scott, focus. <laughs> um. The conditionality for us is the repenting. That's the condition. We repent and give ourselves to the Lord. We surrender. We surrender ourselves, ask for his forgiveness. We surrender. And then after that comes the unconditional part. When we, um, we lift our hands to the Lord, no matter how bad we are, we say, I repent, I give up, I am yours, I worship you, I will follow you, I empty myself of all of my own uh, inner desires and I want them to be replaced with yours, the Lord accepts us. Uh, forgive me, take me. But then once we get there, then we try, like, if we're too legalistic, we try like mad to do everything right, to keep every jot and tittle of the law. We work, and then we, we work so hard, and then, what then we are very rough on ourselves when we fail. I do this all the time. I'm a performer. I was raised to be a performer, and I'm always struggling against the idea that I have failed, that I fell short, that I did something wrong, and that the consequences are going to be very dire, that I hurt somebody, and they'll never get over it, that something I said to them or something that I taught them, is uh, they're going to carry it with them for the rest of their lives, and I will never be able to undo the damage. There's all that kind of stuff that you carry around, as opposed to the fact God knows what he's doing, he will deal with his people, and he will always forgive me if I ask for it. Always, whatever it is, the unconditional part. And this leads then to something that uh, Tim Keller, I love Tim Keller, uh, called um, paradoxical obedience. 
We don't obey to score points with him. We don't, we don't, uh, we're not keeping score. We're not trying to get a track record. We obey because we love him. And when you love somebody fully, you want what they want. You want to please them. How can I please this God? By, you know, and, of course, uh, Jesus also gave us these two, the two commandments, the one commandment and the one that's just like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and all of that, in, all of that implies, and love your neighbor as yourself. We love out of, uh, of a response. Flip side is the whole idea of curse, the whole idea of um, uh, penalty, is God does not bless a rebellious people. In the book of Judges, chapter 2, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. And so uh, later, uh, verse 12, And they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He didn't overlook it. They were people of the covenant, but it's possible to excuse yourself from the covenant. It's possible to throw the covenant over and try to rewrite it to your own liking. We do this all the time. Catch ourselves doing this all the time in ways large and small. It matters. By unbelief, you can leave the sphere of the covenant. Um, and yet, we can always come back. I believe we can always come back. I know some people who say, like, well, if you leave, you're gone. You'll never, you know, you've, you've made the Lord so mad. He'll never. I, don't, I don't believe that. So we need to understand that Jesus, Jesus died for this. This is all terribly important. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And as we understand this and as we get more serious about God, we become more trusting for him. We trust him with our lives. We trust him with our futures. We trust him with our families. We trust him with the people whose feelings we hurt. We trust him with everything, uh, whether it's uh, something we understand or not the way uh, Abraham had to deal with it. But it also leads to something which I think is going to surprise people. It leads to church membership. It leads to associating yourself, being a part of the church, because we are all in Christ. The Lord has a covenant relationship with those of us who are his people, and we are all in Christ. So the person who is next to you who has a covenant with Christ is in Christ. We are connected in this way. We are united in this way, and it, it behooves us to associate ourselves with the people who are in Christ, the Christ that we worship, and to whom we allowed and asked him to bring us into him. Once we're into him, we're all into him, and we're all connected. We're not all separated, all different people, and uh, every once in a while the Lord will put us together for some purpose or other. We're all united. We all depend upon each other. We are all in Christ. The idea of the body, the idea of the association, the idea of the body of Christ as one is terribly important. I've been emphasizing this for years. It is terribly important. It is not optional. It is not some, it's not something that we can do if we feel like it. It's not something we can do if our temperament allows for it. Um, it's terribly important that the body of Christ act like the body of Christ, united as, at one and dedicated to one another. I'll close with a a quote, the idea of the personal and impersonal God from C.S. Lewis. 
An impersonal God? Well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own head? Better still. A formless life force surging through everyone, a vast power that we can all tap into? Best of all. But a living God pulling at the other end of the rope, approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, the covenant lord, the husband? That's quite something else. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Suppose they actually found him. Or worse still, suppose he found you. If there is a God, you are in a sense alone with him. You cannot put off with speculations about your neighbor's hypocrisy or memories about what you've read in books. What will, what will all that chatter and hearsay count when the anesthetic fog we call the real world fades away and the divine presence in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate, and unavoidable? Let's pray. Gracious God, in our eagerness, our, our thirst to know you better, to give ourselves to you, to be understood by you, we ask you, please, Lord, accept our repentance, our ongoing love for you, and use us, Lord, for your purpose. Open our eyes, Lord, to what it is that you would have us know. Use us, Lord, for your purpose to go out into the world and um, uh, be uh, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Guide us all and make us all loving towards one another, supporting one another, edifying one another, encouraging one another, uh, helping one another, and then also letting them help us when we need it. Uh, do this all, Lord, to your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.